Welcome to May the Podcast Be With You. I'm Stephen Mather, solicitor and your business lawyer. I help small and medium-sized business owners and directors manage their legal problems. But more than that, I like to enjoy life, smile and learn from others. So this podcast is a way to help me and you learn how to be successful, whatever that may mean. Welcome along to May the Podcast Be With You. My name's Stephen Mather, and this week I am joined by Stephen Church from Copywriter Pro. Stephen, do you want to introduce yourself? Well, I'd love to. Thank you. Um, well, Stephen, I am uh, I am Stephen Church. You got that right. And I'm what they call an SEO copywriter. And that means that I get businesses more and better paying clients by writing words for their websites which are clear concise and compelling not just website copy that represents about 80 85 percent of what i do but anything where people need words for business so it could be white papers tender documents emails blogs newsletters linkedin profiles so where people want a choice of words that's where i help but i'm also now a copywriting course creator I've created a series of online courses to help people to write their own web copy, which I suppose is why the courses are called Fire That Copywriter. So that's that's my introduction to where I am now. Excellent. And how long have you been doing that? Well, in a way, I've been copywriting for several decades. Um, I enjoyed English at school and um, I've always enjoyed reading and writing. My early working life, I was an English language teacher. I worked overseas in Madrid, in Iran, Saudi Arabia, and also in the UK. And I loved that work. And my love affair with English language has continued ever since. I went into retail, joined the family retail business in 1981. And if anything ever needed writing um, in the business, I would do it. If an article was needed for a local paper, I would do that and enjoy it. And then in 1996, we had a website, which was pretty early. Mm. And I began to be more and more interested in the internet and what it could achieve. And in 2005, we launched a fully all singing, all dancing e-commerce site, which was actually before even John Lewis or Debenhams had theirs. And that's where learning about SEO and about the value of good copy really started to kick in and i studied this a lot Mm. in january 2012 after the business closed i thought now's the time to really give this copywriting a proper go so um a couple of years later i set up copywriter pro about eight years ago and here we are and here we are what was the family business what was that doing well the family business was in a sector which has just disappeared um was selling um, china crystal cutlery cookware and we were northampton's oldest and arguably best loved retail business um it was started in 1858 by by my great great grandfather and i was the fifth generation owner of the business Mm. And and then and then it just stopped being something that people was buying well yeah yeah the 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 decline is is one that many similar business would have suffered it the decline which turned out to be terminal was caused by a number of factors the overall decline of the high street combined with the growth of the internet and interestingly we were very we were very early on in our e-commerce activity and in a way by being early with it and being successful with it we contributed to the decline of the high street um we were typical i suppose we were hoisted by our own petard one one mistake I made was as the uh, e-commerce side proved more and more successful, that would, would have been the time to close down the bricks and mortar side. But instead, I foolishly used the profits from e-commerce to prop up the declining bricks and mortar side. And the result being that the whole thing had to pack up. But although it was a long and slow and painful decline, particularly for staff who we had to lay off over the years, because at one point we had five shops, um, it, it was a painful, slow decline, but as always with these things in business, it's a great way to learn lessons. Mm. And um, yeah. in a perverse way, I'm I'm grateful for the experience because there were so many lessons there which have since proved invaluable. Yeah, like that's what I was finished. 
that, that that's ex that's exactly what I was thinking. I mean, you you um, go through things like that in life, and it's 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 not a um, it's not a failure, not a you know nothing uh, nothing like that, but it's an opportunity to learn. And um, and so, what would you say were the the, the big lessons of learning that uh, that arose out of that for you? Um, well, there are all kinds of lessons. One lesson would be to have brought somebody in, whether it was a business coach or a consultant, to um, help identify what our issues were. You see, the yeah. one of the difficulties was I I wasn't in fact none of my family, and we were the whole family were in the business at one point. At the end, there was just me. But we were in there, we were in the business not on merit. We were in there mm. because we were members of the family. And that's something, uh, it's 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 a, a different argument. But in a way, I'm very anti-family businesses unless they run very carefully. I think yeah. family businesses in general, and there will be exceptions, of course, in general, I think family businesses are bad for business and bad for families. Mm. We get on as a family much, much better now Sure. that we don't see each other every blooming day yeah um so i suppose being very careful about how to involve family members in the business will be one big lesson to learn um one of the difficulties was as the business declined i had a a voice a different voice in each ear in one ear there would be a voice typically represented by my lovely dad who's now 99 and he would try and be encouraging and say, keep going, keep going. Things will turn out, just keep going. So I would work harder and harder and harder, doing more and more myself as people were laid off and working more evenings, more weekends and getting more and more stressed and unhappy. And it, it was a very unhappy time. Mm. Um, the voice in the other ear would be saying, look, smell the coffee. Now is the time to pack up before it's too late. But I resisted that partly because of uh, my dad and others encouraged me to keep going and also because I was fearful I felt I was unemployable what on earth would a uh, if, if you asked me what I did 12 years ago you asked me about about my my working life I'd say I'm a 57 year old failed shopkeeper because that's how I felt a very negative self-image right but that's mm. how I saw myself mm. and so the fear of packing up, the fear of going bust was one reason I kept going. So that was another lesson there that one shouldn't regard oneself as a failure mm. just because of what's happening at the moment. Yes. Um, yeah. In the end, when the business did pack up within two or three days, I got myself some nice work. Um, in copywriting? Well, it was, it was helping another, what, uh, what happened? We had a, um, with the retail business, we called the website the UK Gift Company because that gave us some international credibility. And we did really well with royal commemoratives. I mean, now with um, the death of the Queen, it would have been that there, there, there are now hundreds of thousands of people, particularly um, well in Britain, but overseas in America and Canada and Australia, people who want to buy commemoratives celebrating mm -hmm. the Queen's life. And these royal occasions were incredibly successful for my particular business. Um, and uh, I'm sorry, Stephen, I've lost track here, <laughs> as I'm inclined to do. But uh, so that, that was a part of the business that was successful. Oh, yes. So the the Internet side was called the UK Gift Company. Yes, and another yes. retailer took the UK Gift Company from the liquidators and they took me with it. So I, I ran the website for two or three years afterwards. Okay. Um, before deciding to go into copywriting full time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's um. That's that's it's it's interesting. As I say, it's always interesting. Someone's backstory. Um. Where how you got to where you got to now and the lessons that uh, that you learn. So so you get to that point. You decide. You know what? I I love words. I like writing words and being persuasive with them. And I think I'm good at that. Um, but you're starting from scratch. So how was that for you? You know, sort of going from running a business to having having nothing. I assume <laughs> on day one. What was that transition like for you? Yeah, it wasn't exactly starting from scratch because having worked for ten or fifteen years doing e-commerce, <clears throat> um, I understood about SEO. I understood about what kind of copy works. I had began to learn about psycholinguistics, if you like, how how the way words and sentences are put together can make a psychological difference to people's behavior. Mm. 
So I had learned about that. What was new, however, was setting up my own business. It's something I was terrified of. And I'm sure many people who've who've left corporate or, or, or left employment to set up as a, as a freelancer, mm. they'll all tell you it was um, a, a daunting experience. Because remember, I told you that my self-perception was one of um, uh, being a failure um, to actually get over that and realize that I could do something um, successfully. That was a challenge. Yeah. And um, learning how to run my own business from scratch was a great challenge. But I tell you what, the, the one thing that helped me more than anything else from day one was the same um, function through which I met you, and that was networking. I did networking from the very beginning, mm. and it opened my eyes to so much possibility and potential in terms of collaborating and mutual support. You know, the support I got from so many different people, I, I had no idea networking existed as a thing. No, and, 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 and actually, <clears throat> generally speaking, networking and networking events and groups are, are, are uplifting. They want the best for everybody that's in the room. And so you go in there, you might go in there feeling like, mm, you know, imposter syndrome, I'm not that good, you know, I'm a bit of a failure, this, that and the other. But you um, you get that opportunity to go in and effectively change your self-perception, go in and sell yourself, and then people know you for what you've just told them. Now, over time, I'm not saying that you do that in a in a in a false or misleading way. You just you know you sort of give give the uh, give it a little shine. Um, but over time, people get to know you and realize you you know realize that the work you're doing is good. Um, that you are who you are. You you know um, say what you say and do what you do. And um, but that ability to kind of go from that self perception a little bit defeatist and thinking, oh, can't cry, can I do this? And walking into a room of people that just want you to succeed and do well, is is always uh, is always helpful, I think. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I've uh, I've learned so much about networking and 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 what really works in in networking. Again, I, I made big mistakes at the beginning. I remember my very first networking event was a lunchtime event in the center of Northampton. And I was extremely nervous. Um, and I'm embarrassed to say, I mean, I, I put on a suit, I took a briefcase, I thought that would make me look professional. And I took my brand new shiny business cards. Yes. I went into this place and it was awful because everybody seemed to know everybody else. And they were in little groups and cliques. And I remember elbowing my way into a, a little group of people standing around having a pre-lunch drink. And um, I made the big mistake. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. Am I going red? Um, I pushed out my business card to everybody. That's and it, isn't everybody. It? It's like, hey, here we go, here we go. Yeah. That, 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 that's right. And, hi, um, hi, everybody. Hi, I'm, yeah. I, I remember they... Take they a card. Seemed, that's right. They seem singularly unimpressed. I've done and that then, myself. Have you? Well, yes. Well, yeah. and, and then I, my next mistake was after the meeting, I, I went back home and I thought, oh, that was great, met lots of people. And I sent out two emails, uh, both of which were disastrous. One said... It was great to meet at networking day. Here's what I am. Here are my offers, blah, blah, blah. And then to everybody I hadn't met, I sent out an email saying, sorry, we couldn't meet at the networking thing, but here I am. This is what I do. I'm great at it. And I sat back and thought, oh, now the business is going to come in. <laughs> yeah. um, and you can guess what happened next, which mm. is nothing. Mm. So I learned, um, hopefully fairly quickly, um, I learned that the thing with networking is it's a slow game. It's yeah. softly, softly. And first of all, you have to become known as a nice, helpful person. Then you get known, hopefully, as an authority who knows what they're talking about. And then in time, the referrals will come. And that's why when I go, go networking now, I never make a beeline for the people I already know. I go into the room and look around the edges at the people who are nervously holding a cup of coffee or looking at their phone pretending to read important texts where in fact yes. they're just terrified mm. and were, and are wishing they hadn't turned up yes. i make a beeline for them and i chat them up and with lines like um hi i haven't seen you before do you do a lot of networking i don't start asking them about business at the beginning just about them and people are often very grateful that you've shown an interest in them as a person and I try and ask about them rather than mention myself. And 
I find it does work. Now, one of the tips that I had um, early days of networking was uh, act as if you are the host. Yeah. And, um, and, and when you do, and it, it kind of changes because when you're just attending a networking group, you, you're, you're going out there and you know, your, your intention is to just meet people. But if you go as a host and have the mindset of a host, you, naturally, unless you're a horrible person, of course, but naturally you want people to feel welcome. Absolutely. And um, and that they're not so you know incorporating like you say incorporating those people on the edges that uh, are looking at their phones there we all we've all done that um, but uh, you know just incorporating them and saying you know hi how's everything not seen you around uh, before you know do you know where everything is have you got a drink you know do you That's know it. where the facilities are almost that level of you know basicness and and then going on and saying oh so, so what is it that you do and having a conversation so that was number one tip and number two tip which you yeah. know this already but just um the the, the tip that i had is uh, which is um one of uh stephen covey's seven habits which is just be interested be engaged um it's it's a conversation should be about learning about that person and not as most conversations are as you say something i've got i've got a story that's like that here's my story and you know, ratchet it up to a, a ladder of a conversation just be interested and engaged in that person yeah and no, learn- i mean I, I i agree completely I, in fact it takes me back i actually had to be told this um but many years ago i remember my i was home from school and uh the rest of my family were all away or something my my dad took me to a local pub for steak and chips. And um, I don't know, it was one of those embarrassing conversations. Uh, I was probably about 14 or 15. Um, and uh, I think he mentioned girls, at which I, I must have shriveled up with embarrassment. But he, he, I remember he told me, he said, if you want girls to be interested in you, what you've got to do is to be interested in them. And he gave me a lecture on uh, not just girls, but on anybody. If you want people to like you, then show an interest in them and ask them about themselves. I remember thinking, what what earth are you talking about? What absolute rubbish. Um, But I think he was right. Absolutely. uh, Yeah, he sounds sounds like a very wise man. Well, yes, um, I think he is. Yeah. Um, so, so as you know, the purpose of this uh, podcast is to explore um, success, what success means to people, um, and also to try and work out uh, generally what your laws of what I call my laws of success, um, the rules, the sort of uh, immutable things that you will insist on doing in your life to say this is what I do to achieve what I achieve. Um, so let's start with the first question. So what does success mean to you um what does what it means different things to different people i think that's what i'm working out but what does success mean to you yeah well as in any fruitful discussion one needs to begin by defining terms and you can tell when i start talking like that that i did my degree in philosophy um and it's funny because um in a message radio this morning you told me we'd be talking about success and it just and you've also mentioned habits and You'll know about the importance of developing um, healthy habits in work and life. And often when you first get up in the morning and one of my more mentionable habits when I get up in the morning is I have this book. And I don't know if you can see it's called The Daily Stoic. Yeah. And it's it's great. And I look at it every morning before I open my laptop um, and every day there is an entry um, which represents something that the ancient Greek Stoic philosopher have come up with and it just so happens that for today september the 16th um the entry is all about success so there's a happy coincidence and it quotes the philosopher uh, seneca who said success comes to the lowly and the poor as well as the rich and um privileged and basically what seneca is saying is that success can be measured by how we overcome um, disasters and what he calls the panics of human life, and I think that's very good, because um, it's you could it's easy to be successful if you're privileged and wealthy, um, and uh, but I think if you've had to overcome setbacks, how you overcome them is a very good measure of what I would call success. So I I mean, if you take the family business, which we've discussed where I I worked for 30 years, um, 
that certainly wasn't a success uh, because um, the business declined and it affected my work-life balance. And so in almost every way you can think of, um, in itself, it wasn't a success. But where the success lies, I suppose, is in the way with the encouragement of family and um, people I met through network, in the way I was able able to overcome hmm. the perceived failure and, sure. I suppose, make a success of copywriting. So hmm. that's or, one or alternatively, really, for me, what, what, what I want in life. Go on. Sorry. Um, alternatively, one view uh, could be so. So, the business, the family business, wasn't a success in um, in the eyes of you know the of a financial success because it, uh, it it had to close and liquidate. Um, it wasn't a success in your eyes because you know, hey, look, I've I've not been able to uphold the legacy of you know a hundred and fifty years of a business and and that kind of thing, but. Um, it was a success because it helped you to grow as an individual. It was a success yeah. because it did at some point employ people. It was a success. Yes. So isn't that just a way of looking at things? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And we were successful. I mean, you know, uh, obviously we made um, profit over the years and, 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 it, and it, it had its failures. I mean, we were, we were blacklisted in the First World War because my grandfather and great uncle were conscientious objectors. In fact, my great uncle went to uh, Dartmoor and Wormwood Scrubs, um, and my grandfather only escaped going to prison because he agreed to work at the local hospital. Um, and so we had white feathers put through the letterbox and very few customers during the First World War. Um, and so the, the the business, like like so many independent businesses, it had its downs and its ups, but it was successful during my tenure because we employed lots of people we sold good stuff in a good way we were very good with customers people liked the business people loved the business um so of course it had its its successes and mm. that's why it would have been silly to just view its its um demise as as the only measure of success or failure mm. but for me success in its broadest sense in my life as a whole is that I want to be of value. So I want to be of value um, commercially. In other words, I want to help um, my clients. I want to be of value to the community. And I suppose in that sense, I, I volunteer for the Samaritans um, and I'm also a celebrant for funerals. So um, that's helping the community. And I want to be of value to my family. So that's why I commit as much time as I can to them. So to me, success is a way of being of value. That's one way of looking at it. Mm, mm, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So how do you um how do you work that out into your into your daily life then? So well, one one of the things that I'm <clears throat> I'm always really keen to look at. So people will say things um like you know this is this is my why my my kids are my why um and uh and and yet you know they're not spending time with them because they're running the business yeah i'm too too, too busy too i'm working too hard working all the hours and i don't get to spend the time with the children which is what you say is your why um and so where if you're doing that and you're you know looking to add value to your clients your family and community how do you balance that how do you integrate that into your daily life well, I suppose I'm very lucky being a freelancer um, because I can pick and choose. Um, I'm able to support my family in ways that many other people aren't. For example, this morning, part of my routine on Friday mornings is to take um, my uh, the children of one of my daughters um, to nursery and to school. So that was a trip to Earls Barton, take little Stadley to nursery and little Teddy to Earls Barton Primary School. And then this afternoon, I collect them from school and I'm taking Teddy swimming. Nothing very unusual about this. Lots of grandparents support their children by um, helping with the grandchildren. So I genuinely believe I'm of value. So that's um, that's with that. And halfway through today, again, being a freelancer, I can do this. I have a shift at the local branch of the Samaritans. 
So um, today I'll be of value to the wider community, I hope. Um, and then I also have client work to do today. So I'll be of value to my clients. Um, so I hope, so today is a, uh, it's a good day to answer your question as to how I'm going to be of value or how I'm going to be successful today. And and do you do you do you plan it in on a on a sort of granular level and say okay here's my diary and I'm going to split that up by a third a third a third or is it just per chance? No, no. Um, I am I am something of a workaholic and my my I'm not sure if I run my diary or my diary runs me. I my Outlook diary is is crammed full. And of course, like most of us, it's different colours for different kind of event, um, and invariably i don't allow enough time for client projects which means too often i'm working into the evenings or weekends which i know is a shameful confession i should allow more time what i'm inclined to is if i see a space in my diary i thought oh i'll book in a samaritan shift for that space and now i regret it because client work has taken longer than i thought mm. um so i'm not i'm not good at allowing enough time um I should diarise a daily bike ride, for example, which I tried doing, but then it didn't. It didn't get done. Um, yeah, so I, I probably do almost certainly I do too much, but it does generally keep me happy. Sure, and th and that's important. Well, me being happy is very important. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. That's what the Stoic philosophers say as well. Mm, yeah absolutely so keeping happy so doing those things and not uh all work and no play as uh yes. as the saying goes is yeah. is an incredibly important aspect of it and and, and i yeah, guess I'm... and it sounds like you know doing the samaritan stuff um you know that must be you know satisfying and fulfilling it must be difficult um but it, there must also be a satisfaction in, in helping being able that... to be there for people yes um lots of people like to do some form of voluntary charity work i know you do the nice thing about the samaritans is that the reward you get is instant um there are so many different ways of volunteering one way might be for example to um stand outside the local shops with a collection tin and that's fine nothing wrong with that at all it's a valuable contribution but you don't see the results of your efforts um well, the, the, the results of your efforts are, are very distant. They're very remote. Whereas when you're taking phone calls or answering emails or doing web chat with people in distress, the rewards are instant. And there aren't often, you know, there sometimes aren't rewards. They don't always feel better after an exchange with you, but you hope that they do. Mm. And just... Um, one of the great things about Samaritans, it's actually good for me because you do have to listen. You might have gathered by now that I'm I'm rather talkative, but as a Samaritan, it's most important that one tempers that. You have to listen. You have to actively listen. Um, and that's different from just passively listening. And mm. the idea is to encourage the caller to talk about, um, most of all, talk about their feelings, about what their current, crisis um and it's to encourage them to give them the space to think about their options they often think they don't have options but if you can encourage them to talk things through they surprising how often they come up with options yeah. and at the end of the call they'll thank you for giving them advice but in fact mm, you, you haven't given so. any advice at all it's we're not allowed to give advice it's not our role mm. Mm. did you um did you have to do some training for for that yeah sort of the that training aspect? for samaritans is very thorough um to begin with it's not easy to become a samaritan you have you start off with an information day it's called where you think you're going along to be given information about samaritans what it's all about but in fact you get involved in activities with the other people who've gone along to try it out and the activities you realize straight away you're being tested and observed that's a very good thing you play little parlor games with your fellow potential trainees and their games involving discussion where if you have prejudices, they will come out. Um, so the Samaritan trainers want to know that you can park your prejudices. We all have prejudices. They're unavoidable, but you have to know to park them, to ignore them, and you have to learn to be tolerant because you hear some fairly 
unpleasant things on the yeah. phone sometimes yeah. and you have to learn not to judge them what matters is is not that the caller might be showing distasteful prejudices but the caller you can help the caller get over their feelings of distress yeah. um through through talking about their feelings mm. and, so the, the, the time the, to correct them absolutely <laughs> not so the um the training is very much geared towards um learning to actively listen without bringing in one's own prejudices and opinions and definitely not talking about oneself and giving advice that's absolute no no we don't self-disclose at all and if the caller might very genuinely um say well what about you uh, do you have an experience of this and you don't say well yes i do or or no i don't you say well really this call is about you and what you're going through these things are really important and that that kind of training must must have been useful not just for the samaritan calls but just in life generally yeah absolutely um because in in, in business for example if you're having a zoom call or a a face-to-face -face chat with a, a potential client and you will know this Stephen. what you don't do is to go into the meeting and say right this i'm copywriter pro this is what i do i can do this i can do that and i can get you lots more customers um the first thing you do is to ask your potential client about them and their business and their successes and their challenges and so again it's all about active listening you're absolutely right very important in business mm, absolutely um so what uh what else would you say is a is a key to success for you a law of success um I, yes i don't i haven't looked at it in, in terms laws um i suppose i've already so um i suppose when i do client work i want to be really sure that what i come up with will be valuable for my client that it'll do for them what they want what they expect um yes i guess so i i'm not answering your question very well because i've never thought of it in terms of laws if you ever allow me back on for another podcast, I shall make sure I've got my laws written out so we can discuss them. But provided it's, it's, I'm more, it's more, I, I'm I'm calling them laws because hey, I'm a lawyer and it's and it's yeah, a good right. good pun on, uh, on on what I'm doing. But yeah. just those those things that you know what you you do on a on a regular basis. I I it it's the the idea behind the show is is to just explore that with normal people because I'm I'm sick to death of of seeing the. Uh, the Instagram social media um, imposition of what uh, success means. Join the 5 a.m. club. You know, go and take a get up at 5 a.m. Have an ice bath. Do a marathon. Uh, meditate. Write a gratitude journal, um, yes. and then manifest what you want for that day or week, and then it will appear. Yes. Um, and uh, and that's the kind of the, the modern rules of success. And I just. I'm 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 looking at whether or not that that is uh, is what is what most people do or or not. So do you have any kind of obviously you're you're reading your you know your daily stoic and that gives you some um, encouragement or uh, you know a, a, a daily platform. So is there anything yeah. else that you kind of do on a daily or weekly basis that um, you know you 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 wouldn't kind of change the habits that you're talking about? Yes, I do um, regular um, social media posts. I think they're important. Um, and I try and do one every other day. Um, I think I think probably, I mean, your, your question is a real eye-opener. I'm, I'm, I'm inclined to be, and these are not necessarily positive qualities, I'm inclined to be um, impulsive and sometimes a little excitable and one of my faults is that i do if i'm not very really careful i do go for the most attractive option um rather than doing the things i ought to do so i suppose i i do i benefit from a degree of self-awareness and i suppose um what I do is try and temper my natural instincts. And that's why I'm fairly strict with myself about my diary. And I do try and fit in 
the things that I ought to do rather than the things that I just want to do. And I'm getting better at it. So I suppose my law of success is to do things regularly and do things consistently. I don't always succeed, but that's what I aim to do. And I am getting better at it. I also thinking of, of what you're saying about all the instructions we, we're given over social media and, and the like, I think it's important to recognize oneself, one's own failings. I'm better at being kind to myself. And rather than trying to change myself in every way and become an absolute monster of consistency, um, I try and accommodate my personality in my daily activities. And so I don't beat myself up too badly if I break some of my rules. Um, so this has turned into something of a waffle, I'm afraid. But I think it's important to acknowledge one's um, qualities and one's weaknesses and not to beat oneself up too much about the weaknesses, but to just try and work around them. And you mentioned there um, that sometimes you would like to do uh, you realise you should do the things that you ought to do rather than the things that you want to do. Yeah. And but but isn't that isn't that almost the opposite of success? Because success is doing the things that you want to do. Well, yeah. Um, again, it, it it depends on your definition. I think. Um, yes, I think you're right. I think you're right. Provided you can temper the things you want to do. Um, now, I. I I think the basis of each day should be doing the things you ought to do and the wants to do can be a kind of reward. I think if you construct your day that way, that will set you on the path to success. You won't manage it all the time. Um, there's no way you'll always do all the things you ought to do. And there's no way that you'll always do all the things you want to do. But I think the basis should be doing the things you ought to do. So what I try and do is... Um, certainly mornings is client work and don't uh, which I ought to do and don't get me wrong I also like doing it yeah. um, so for me it's client work mornings and then it might be other slightly lighter stuff like marketing or catching up with um, connections and certainly reading and occasionally a nap in the afternoons these are things I want to do yeah um I do enjoy the engaging part of business. So I try and do the engagement in the afternoons. And and the things, so effectively, the, the things that you ought to do are the, uh, to put it crudely, the things that pay the bills um, yeah. or the things that keep you, um, uh, keep you doing, doing what you've said you'll do, the, you know, sort of the integrity to the delivery of service, for instance. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, one one ought to do one's client work. And, and you know, I really do enjoy it. It's a wonderful feeling. Um, there's this thing called flow, um, F-L-O-W, flow, um, where you can put your head down and you start a project and then you look at your watch and two or three hours have gone by in a moment. And that's a wonderfully rewarding feeling because you've been almost in a, it's, it's a semi-hypnotic state. It means you've been really focused. You haven't been distracted. You haven't looked at LinkedIn or Facebook or whatever. And that's immensely rewarding when you've actually done the thing you ought to do. In yeah. fact, my my mum, who's a very fit and lively 95-year-old, we often talk about things philosophical. And her, for her, the definition of happiness is achieving something that was a little bit difficult. It could be something as simple as weeding a patch of the garden or even doing the washing up that's been sitting there for longer than it should have been doing something that's been a bit of a pain a little bit difficult it could be climbing a mountain it could be well, in her case finishing a book um which she just finished writing but and I, I know exactly what she means you can be a lot happier if you could measure happiness this would, it would be easy wouldn't it but you can be a lot happier completing something that's been a little bit difficult a little bit of a challenge than in indulging yourself in something that's purely enjoyable and passive hmm. and i think there's a lot to that um am i right in thinking did you study philosophy i did philosophy? I, I got my degree in philosophy hmm. 
And it's amazing how often it impinges on everyday life, just on ways of thinking. Yeah. And, and, and you use that presumably um, without putting words in your mouth. Actually, that, that background of philosophy and the, the stoic philosophy that you have, that is something that Im impacts and touches upon your life and, and your involvement with others on a daily basis. Yes, I think uh, it, philosophy is often much misunderstood. In fact, the ancient Greeks and Roman philosophers, for them, philosophy was telling us how to live. And al although I, I do in, in enjoy reading about the the stoic philosophers it's not philosophy in the modern sense so they sort of say you shouldn't uh think and do this you should think and do that and i just i'm astonished by how often i think they're right but philosophy for centuries now has been more about critical thinking mm. about how to think analytically without prejudice without bias and i do think um that the world would be a a happier and a more successful place if more people were able to think critically um, and think without letting bias get in the way as often as they do. And one day, if I were ever to be prime minister, which everybody who's listening to this will be grateful, I won't be. But one thing I would do would be to bring in critical thinking as a core subject at school, even primary school. Um, just learning just to step back and think. And I mean, in, in, in law, it's important. Did, did you, Stephen, when, when you were studying law, did you do any anything philosophical? Is, is Would you call jurisprudence? And, and Yeah, and a little bit of that. Yeah, a little bit of that, isn't there, uh, in, yeah. in studying law. But um, but as you, I, I think it, because it's, it's linked to that, um, you know, the jurisprudence kind of aspects of it is, it's well how it, we're looking really how courts think and and the approach that courts make you know from from historical days and the courts of the equity courts to now yeah. and um you know and the precedent setting courts but i mean one an aspect where i would have thought philosophy came in into law would be the concept of punishment people say you know there's a a, a court case happens and uh, it might be a particularly unpleasant one and the the guilty party is given five years and people in outright say five years for what he did blah 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 but then i asked the question well what is what's punishment for what's it meant to achieve on the one hand it could be to make society safer on the other hand it could be to educate that person to lead a better life to rehabilitate them the third reason for punishment could be to satisfy society's perfectly natural desire for revenge I mean, so there are so many different aspects to punishment, and I think it helps if we if we think about that. Mm. Um, think think about what punishment is meant to achieve before we start declaring our view as to whether the punishment was appropriate or not. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Um, Stephen, you've got a lot of books in the background there um so yeah as, as people do on zoom calls hey i look i've got no books right so here's mine um yeah. <laughs> i'm moving house they're all packed in a box but people have books behind to demonstrate that you read um so presumably you read or, or maybe just like me and buy books but um uh, yeah. books have helped you presumably in in the business world yeah books books help me enormously i mean really the books are there displayed behind me to give the fake impression that I can read and one day soon I must learn um but I what I try and I would do love to read my own words he says <laughs> <laughs> yes um what I do with reading is I I do enjoy um business books and in fact I belong to um a business book um book club um run by Mari Richardson and uh, yes and uh, lots of people you know turn up to that monthly and at the moment we're reading a book um called four thousand weeks by oliver berkman which is uh, on my book shelf on... yeah uh, is it on the shelf you say you it's, it's it? on my shelf yeah well oh, it's, it's not on my shelf it, it's oh, in a oh, box ready to move house but uh yeah, yeah, I started um, yeah. so I, I i love books like that um but i also think i'm a great fan of fiction i think it's it's a great mistake to just read business books I think fiction, fiction for me takes me on a, a transport of delight. 
it's like meditation mm. they take you on a journey they take you on a trip you yes. exercise parts of your brain that you never would if you just read self-help books or business books so i have always have one of each going at a time a fiction book of fiction and not so much self-help business books but um books about how society and people function mm. Um, it's, yeah. a, it's something that actually I every time I read um, uh, a, a novel, I think, well, this is pretty good. I should read more of these. And like you say, you get transported to you know another time, another world, another place, mm. um, and a good book. Obviously, you know you can become absorbed into it. And I go, well, do you know what? I should I should really read some more of this. And then I go into a bookshop and just buy a few more business books just for the shelf. <laughs> And uh, and always promise that I'll uh, I'll get round to reading them. And I I kind of read the summary, speed read the first couple of chapters, and then go, wow, well, I've I've worked that book out now. I've sum summarised it in my own head. It's fine. I don't need to read it. I'm terrible at reading uh, reading books. Uh, linking the two together, so one one book that I didn't read, I had it on audio book. I don't know if you uh, if you come across it was uh, Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow or Thinking Think Fast and Slow or something along those lines. Have you have you read that book? Um, I've got it. It's it's here. Um, yes, and it's one. Yeah, it's on that row somewhere. Um, yes, I have. Is that the I row of it. books that I hope to read one day? But <laughs> no, 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 I have read it. But just because I've read a book, and in case you're going to catch me out by asking me a, a question, I can cheerfully say that I'm very bad at remembering them, even after I've just finished it, remembering mm. the, 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 the contents. But you've got to be very careful about boasting about the books you read when i was studying i did a postgraduate course on english language teaching and there's a chap on the course who um well I'm, I'm surprised he'd been allowed on the course because he told us in the interview um he was he was asked have you ever read chomsky and uh he said oh yes yeah um and the interviewer said so what did you what do you think of chomsky and he said oh great book really enjoyed it um which was not exactly the right answer, seeing as Noam Chomsky was a, is well, he's he's still alive, just a, a person, yeah, writer on uh, linguistics and uh, the philosophy of language. Yeah. Mm. yeah, so one has to be very careful about boasting about the books one has read. Absolutely, or indeed anything. Yeah, it's yes. um, it's yes. it's uh, yeah. Why why I'll always always be honest. Uh, I'm a man of integrity. On honesty is my uh, my number one thing. So if somebody said something and said, "Have you read it?" I would be honest and say no. Uh, much well, better, in my view, to do that than to try and fluff it and say, "Well, yeah, it's because you'll right. always you'll always be uncovered. Yeah. Doesn't matter what it is. Um, it could be uh, writing a book, meeting somebody, um, going to a particular place. It's uh, it's the worst thing yeah. to be embarrassed yeah. by uh, by a lie. Yes, and and people do it the whole time. I'm a I'm a very keen football fan, and I've been a uh, and I hope nobody will mock me too much. I've been a lifelong supporter of Northampton Town Football Club and still go to the home games. But there was a famous match in the late 1960s, an FA Cup match, where we played Manchester United at home and George Best was playing and scored six goals and we lost 8-2. And it's a memorable occasion. Um, it's astonishing the number of people who claim to have been there and seen it. Um, I, I think, and and when in fact the capacity of the ground was only twenty two thousand, there must be sixty or seventy thousand local people who claim they were there. It's the same with the World Cup final, where only ninety thousand people watched it, but apparently half a million claim claim they were there. Yes, not clever. Absolutely, uh, Stephen. I wanted to touch upon um, your uh, the, the 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 work that you do as a humanist celebrant as well. Yes. So talk to me about that. How did you get into that? Okay, I got into that because I've always, um, I've been brought up an atheist or a humanist, which is much the same thing. If, if you like, humanism is athe atheism with a smiley face. Um, and I've, I belong to Humanists UK, which is the accrediting organisation. It's a charity which campaigns for all kinds of good causes. Um, and they were asked, they were looking for celebrants for North Hatton area. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. I explored it. And I do it for a number of reasons. One is that um, it's connected with writing because you have to write the funeral tribute. In fact, I had to do one later today. 
Um, it involves um, helping people because you visit the family of the deceased and um, that's always interesting. If you're interested in people, then visiting families um, it, and finding out about the life of the deceased is, is fascinating. There's an altruistic element in that it's nice to help people and people who are grieving need support. They've got so much going on in their lives when they've lost a, a loved one. If you can help the whole funeral process um, go through smoothly and so they can focus on their own grief rather than worrying about who's going to say what and what music is going to be played and that kind of thing, mm. then you're helping people. So a whole host of reasons. I suppose another reason is I think I'm probably a show off and standing up in front of people. Maybe I enjoy that. But so there are a, a good number of reasons. And I suppose a, a fourth or fifth reason is that because I'm a humanist, there is an, a slight evangelical element. I mean, one doesn't stand up and 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 pronounce the virtues of, of humanism, but by presenting a humanist funeral and doing it well, maybe you'll make people think about humanism um, and making people think is generally a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Lovely. And and um, for those people that don't uh, don't. I haven't kind of linked the dots on mm. that. Um, a humanist would, uh, the difference between a humanist funeral and, and any kind of quote, other type of funeral is that other funerals would talk about life after death or heaven or, be, yep. you know, those kind of comments. Yes. Whereas a humanist just goes, hey, look, we're going to bury you or cremate you, but it's about your life that you let. Yeah. You. Um, the, the, the big, the main distinguishing factor between a humanist funeral and a religious one is that a humanist funeral would contain no elements of what we call collective worship. So that means no hymns and no prayers. But a humanist funeral, this is really important to get across, it's not exclusive, it's inclusive. Obviously, there are inevitably people who attend who have a faith, and that's acknowledged because usually somewhere halfway or three-quarters of the way through the service um, will play a piece of music that family have chosen and sit in silence and listen to it and I introduce that I say now we're going to pause for a moment and reflect on the on on Joan's life and while we're listening this is a chance for those of you who have a, a religious belief to make your own private prayer so there is an opportunity for people so people shouldn't oh. feel they've been left out if they're yeah. attending funeral funeral um we're not anti-religion we're we're simply non religious um and of course the term collective worship there is important because so many pieces of music might have a religious element i mean the the deceased might for example have been a very keen rugby fan and so their family might want bread of heaven played as in the funeral well that's absolutely fine i would say that's not so much a religious thing as a cultural thing um and so we're we're as flexible as we can be in what we accommodate at the human funeral without being hypocritical and breaking our own principles. Mm. But we have to make this clear at the very beginning when we start talking to, to, to uh, the family. I mean, there was an occasion early on. I mean, I've done about 200 funerals now, but one of my first ones, I sat with the family for an hour and a half and found out all about what they wanted, what poems and readings they wanted, what music they wanted, and about the life of the deceased. And then right at the end of, member of the family at the back of the room said well that's all fine when do we have the lord's prayer so i so now i make sure the very beginning when i when i'm on the phone speaking to the family the first time i do make clear make clear that any acts of collective worship if they want that's fine but i'm not the person to do it with them is the is the uh, is the way to do that is start the com start start talking and then sneeze and see if they if they reply by saying bless you go, okay i think we're out i think that's the end of this call thanks very much <laughs> that's right yes that, that that would be good there is a what do germans say when somebody sneezes gesundheit or something like that isn't it sorry is it gesundheit or something that's the one yeah um and that's what um humanists will do uh, as an alternative uh, 
to saying bless you. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, so this, I, I'm, I'm trying to get you. You know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a Christian and have that's some, right. strong, strong faith. Um, so I'm trying to get this question. It might come across a little, little bit naive, but do, do you think? So I, I would say, if somebody asked me, I would say my faith is integral and it's really helped me over my life and my career and that kind of thing. Is as being a humanist, would you say that that has helped you in your career and life, or is it just a thing? It's it like it, it hasn't. It's just the, the the non-existence of God in your view is immaterial. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question, and I think I've got an answer. Whether it's the answer or not, I don't know. Um, one thing that's unusual about humanism, and 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 it's a reason why humanist UK sometimes struggles because you don't in in every town or village or, or whatever you'll find religious groups, and they might be groups or societies based on faith humanist uk they've got in one or two cities certainly in chester they have an active humanist group but you won't find for example a northampton humanist group i don't think there's a leicester humanist group the reason is that it's difficult to get together a group where what they have in common is what they don't believe in mm. um mm. and so and having yeah. a group that says we don't do collective worship, we're going to come and meet together and not collectively worship about the things. Yes, that exactly. We don't... We're, we're, yeah. we're going to we're going to get together and talk about all the things we don't believe in. Mm. So, and so that applies to your question, which is such a, a good question. Certainly, my humanist belief doesn't influence my daily life and work because I don't sometimes think. Am I going to take this path or that path with my work um, based on my humanist belief? Because my humanist belief is about what I don't believe in. Mm. Having said that, there is a very positive side to humanism. Um, humanists believe, just as many Christians and Muslims and Hindus believe, we believe in all kinds of the same things. We believe in being nice to each other. We believe in um, freedom and democracy. In fact, Humanist UK campaigns very actively for lgbt rights it campaign it um campaigns for all kinds of honorable causes it campaigns for dignity in dying which some christians would support and some wouldn't um so uh it would be wrong to say that humanism guides my everyday life but my philosophy does and my my moral code does and my moral code would be very very similar i would guess as to yours um which is which is kind of why i don't i don't like it sometimes when i hear about when i hear the term christian principles as though christians invented them and founded them when in fact i would suggest that before christ was born many people were nice to each other and looked after each other and 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 lived good um collaborative supportive lives mm. Mm. I guess that's that's almost a branding thing, isn't it? It's it's like we we refer to a vacuum cleaner as a Hoover, um, and vacuum cleaners existed before that, and yes, the, those principles right. existed uh, before Jesus turns around and says, "Hey, we that's should right. do X, Y, and Z." Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, but it's uh, yeah, it's we 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 call upon the, the teachings it, of Jesus as that yeah. we go. Here's a here's here's some good teachings. That's right. And uh, many of the teachings say some very good things, which I agree with wholeheartedly. If anybody listening to this is interested, the, they might and they might find it quite funny if you, they go to humanistsuk.org. On the home page, there's a multiple choice questionnaire called How Humanist Are You? And you answer all these questions um, about your attitude to life, your philosophy, and you get a little score at the end, which is quite fun. I have a funny feeling you wouldn't do very well at it, Stephen, but you could have a go. If the first question is, do you believe in God? And um, <laughs> that's that's where I'm going to fall down, aren't I? Yeah. I'll give it a go. I'll give it do a go. Let me know how you get on. I will do. Stephen, I've taken up enough of your time. Thanks very much for coming on. Um, if people wanted to get hold of you, how would they find you? How would they spend okay. some money with you? Well, and I'd, I'd like to, um, in turn, say thank you so much. You've been very well to stay awake through most of the interview, because I do talk, talk a lot, so thank you so much. If they'd like to get hold of me, um, my phone number is 07703472207. I have a website called Copywriter Pro. Um, and if they can't remember that, if they search for Northampton Copywriter, 
and in fact anything with the word copywriting and I do do very well high up on Google and if anybody wants to chat to me about um, any aspect of copywriting or business or life in general it would be lovely to uh, meet up with them and have a chat I do enjoy engaging with them um, engaging with people is fun lovely Stephen thank you very much for your time thank you so much Stephen bye bye So for those of you that are interested in what score I got on humanist.org, it was 29%. There you go. Thanks.